And please open your Bibles to Matthew 24. Again, that's Matthew chapter 24. How should we respond today to what the Scripture teaches with regards to the great tribulation? That's the question I want to explore with you this morning from Matthew 24. 4 to 8. Let's begin our time this morning by reading that passage together. And in order to set the context for what Jesus says there, again, Matthew 24, 4 to 8, let's actually begin in verse 1 and read all the way through verse 14. So once again, our passage for today is Matthew 24, 4 to 8, but we're going to start by reading that passage in its entire context, beginning in verse 1 and continuing through verse 14. Jesus left the temple and was going away when His disciples came to point out to Him the buildings of the temple. But He answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As He sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness is increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So if you've been with us over the past several weeks, and you already know that while we've been in Matthew 24... For about a month now, today marks our first week actually examining the answer that Jesus provides starting in verse 4 and continuing all the way through chapter 25, which is a dissertation on the end times widely known today as the Olivet Discourse. The disciples come to Jesus with this question in verse 3 about the end. They ask Him in response to His prediction of the temple's destruction in verse 2, quote, When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They start by asking Him about the end of the age. And we saw last week that the reason why they come with this question is because in the book of Daniel it was said that from the time that a decree went forth to rebuild Jerusalem, there would be 70 periods of seven years for a total of 490 prophetic years. Because the Jews operated according to a lunar calendar, a prophetic year in the Old Testament is 360 days. The book of Daniel says that there will be 490 years of 360 days, or to use Daniel's terminology, 70 weeks before the end of Israel's suffering and the beginning of the Messiah's kingdom would come to pass. At the conclusion of the 69th week, or so in the 483rd prophetic year, Daniel 9.26 says, quote, An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Just before that, in Daniel 29.25, it says that at the conclusion of the 69 weeks, a, quote, anointed one, a prince, shall come. Verse 26 says that he'll be cut off 
after the conclusion of those 69 weeks. The destruction of the city and the sanctuary will follow that. Back in Matthew 24, Jesus has just concluded His final showdown with the scribes and the Pharisees by telling the disciples in verse 2 that the temple will be destroyed. Just before that, He told the scribes and the Pharisees that they would suffer the penalty for their rejection of His message. And He lamented the coming destruction of Jerusalem. So the disciples are starting to grasp the significance of what Jesus is saying in in, uh, relation to Daniel 9. They know that He's the Messiah. They've confirmed as much back in Matthew 16. Jesus has already told them that He was going to be rejected and crucified in Jerusalem on at least three occasions. And we know from the the incident on the Mount of Transfiguration that at least three of His disciples have begun to accept that fact in earnest. They just witnessed this explosive showdown in the temple between Jesus and the religious leaders, and now Jesus is saying that both the temple and Jerusalem are going to be destroyed. The disciples are starting to get it. They're between Daniel 9.25 and Daniel 9.26. The 69th week has come to a close. The 70th week, the last period of seven years, is about to begin. After that comes the kingdom of heaven. They want to know, when will this take place? When will the 70th week begin? And what will be the sign of your coming to close it out? Up to this point, all I've tried to do is get us up to speed so that we can know why the disciples are asking this question. Unfortunately, I don't know that the doctrine of the end times, or eschatology is another word for it, doctrine of the end times, I don't know if that's discussed very much in the church today. And and even when it is, it can easily be a very confusing subject to master. The result is that I'd venture to say most Christians probably don't understand the context of this question going in cold, And that would only serve to make Jesus' answer even more confusing. So that's where we began. We began by spending four weeks just building up to the point where we can understand just what the disciples are asking here. And at this point, once we understand, I think once we understand what's prompting the disciples' question, I think it's very easy to get swept away in speculation about whether or not we That is to say, you and I, this generation of Christians today, whether or not we are on the verge of the 70th week. Last week I spent some time explaining what the 70th week is going to look like. I explained that it's going to be a time of severe persecution for Israel. We discussed the career and the activity of the Antichrist, who Daniel says will wage war across the entire earth and even establish himself as an object of worship in the temple in Jerusalem at the midpoint of the 70th week. And then I closed by reminding you that this isn't fiction. This is history. Daniel 9 isn't a mere guess. He's writing history before it happens. I even asked you where you fit in the story because the events that Daniel describes, you're going to be a part of them in some way or another. It's your future that he's writing about. And I think it's once you begin to grasp this point that eschatology actually becomes a very interesting subject. Once you start to realize that, you know, wait a minute, this this is really happening. Like Daniel wrote the book of Daniel before the 69 weeks, and the 69s have occurred in history just exactly as Daniel has described. I mean, Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the exact day that Daniel predicted. And that means that we're now in the middle of Daniel 9, 26. 
with the 70th week in verse 27, soon to follow. It's once you realize that, I think you begin to go, so, so wait a minute, wait a minute. Does that mean that I might be participating in the 70th week like, like tomorrow? Eschatology can seem like a, a very irrelevant topic until you understand that it's talking about your future. Then it becomes very relevant, very interesting. Like I've said, I can still remember the moment when, when that clicked for me. I was standing at a gas station listening to music blaring from the car next to me when I realized, hey, wait a minute, I, I live in Rome. <laughs> Daniel said the Roman Empire would exist until the end, and he's right, I live in Rome. I can see it. For all intents and purposes, I'm a Roman. He's describing the future of my society. All of a sudden, eschatology became a very exciting concept because it wasn't just describing the future as if these events were some far-off distant thing. No, it was, it was explaining the present. Eschatology explains the world that's going on around us. And again, it's at this point, once you realize that that's what eschatology is doing, that is explaining not just the future, but the present, it's then that I think you begin to ask yourself, so, so could that be the Antichrist? Is that what Daniel was describing? This, this headline that I just read in my newspaper, is that an omen proclaiming that the 70th week is about, is about to begin right now? You begin looking for present signs of prophecy's fulfillment. And this is only amplified, I think, once you consider just what's at stake in the fulfillment of these prophecies. Over the past few weeks, we've talked, for instance, about what this question meant for the disciples. Jesus is predicting the devastation of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. They understand this to be a harbinger of incredible suffering for Israel, a time known in Jeremiah 30 as a day of distress for Jacob. That's what the Great Tribulation is from Israel's perspective. It's a day of great distress. It's a time of severe discipline meant to bring Israel to the point of repentance. So the question the disciples want to know is, when is that going to happen? And even more importantly, when is it going to end? On one hand, they dread the Great Tribulation because of the amount of suffering that it will bring to their people. And yet on the other, they're eager for the completion of that suffering because of the blessing that it will bring at the end. Point is, they're incredibly concerned over the fate of their countrymen. Now, we may say to ourselves, what does that have to do with us? I mean, we're not Israelites, right? But think about what the Great Tribulation means to you. No, you may not be an Israelite. But that doesn't mean that the outcome of the Tribulation isn't going to affect you. Consider, for instance, what happens in John 11. The resurrection of Lazarus. Over the past few weeks, we've, talk, we've discussed the resurrection of believers. We've said that it will occur at some point around the time of the Great Tribulation, and most definitely by the time of its conclusion. It precedes the millennium that the Great Tribulation ushers in. Well, consider what Martha says to Jesus when he finally comes to Bethany. First, she says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's seen Jesus perform remarkable acts of healing before. She knows that Jesus could have prevented Lazarus from dying. He had that power in himself. And, and then she continues, perhaps even hopefully, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. Jesus responds, and he, and he says to Martha, your brother will rise again. And then listen to this, listen to this. Martha says to Jesus, I know that he will rise again 
in the resurrection on the last day. She understands that men like Daniel predicted a coming resurrection of the saints. And although Lazarus had died, she anticipates that he will live again. And not only that, but I think it's fair to say that she expects that she will see him again. In other words, this isn't just some general hope that Lazarus' soul isn't extinguished. No, she believes that she will actually see him again after he's been raised from the dead. That's why she has hope here. So the relationship isn't over in her eyes. She just understands that his death has put a pause in that relationship. And she wishes Jesus could have been there so the wait wouldn't have to be so long. She wishes Lazarus could have lived longer so she wouldn't have to wait to see him again. Now think about that for a moment. Think about that. Up to this point, we haven't talked a whole lot about what conditions are going to be like in the millennium. But suffice to say, before the end comes, there's going to be a resurrection. And what Martha seems to grasp, which I think helps us understand the significance of that moment, is that the resurrection is not simply a reactivation of biological processes. It's a reunion. People you know, people you've loved, who have believed in Christ and passed on, they're going to come to life again. And you'll get to see them. Old friends will be friends once again. Relationships broken by death are going to be restored. Now, are they going to be changed? Most certainly. Certainly they'll be changed. Jesus explains in Matthew 19, they won't have quite the same, we won't have quite the same relationship with one another in that day as we have with one another right now. But we can only assume that in whatever way those relationships will be changed, they'll be changed for the better. More than this, these relationships will not only be restored, but they will be restored never to be broken again because the enemy that broke them, death, will have been destroyed by Jesus Christ. That's what the resurrection of Lazarus proves. Jesus tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead to prove his point. Jesus has the power to conquer death, and those who believe in Him will inherit eternal life. So these loved ones who are raised, they'll be raised never to die again. Cancer will not ravage their bodies. Those whose memories have been frayed by Alzheimer's will have their minds restored. They'll take on a body so superior to the ones that decayed and died that it would seem we might even have trouble recognizing them at first. Think back to those you've lost. Those who you know have died in Christ. Don't you want to see them again? You know, I have a grandpa who I believe knew Christ. I loved him dearly. And I look forward to the time when I'll see him again. I miss him. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the end of the Great Tribulation. We're talking about the end of death, the restoration of life to long-missed loved ones. We're talking about the elimination of pain and sorrow, the destruction of evil. That's part of what death symbolizes. And when Jesus gets to Lazarus' tomb, when he sees those who have loved Lazarus weeping in sorrow over the loss of their friend, he too weeps. And then, of course, he proceeds to reverse that sorrow by raising Lazarus from the dead. That's going to happen at the return of Jesus. And not just with death or with the other effects of sin. No, the very root of those consequences, which is sin itself, is going to be eliminated. 
The scripture doesn't just say that God is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes, but it says that He will ultimately even eliminate sin from His creation entirely. Now most of that will happen in the eternal state, but even in the millennium it says that there will be no more war. That people will even melt down their instruments of war and turn them into farm implements. They'll actually turn instruments of death into instruments of life. Because there'll no longer be any need for weapons at all. War will be eliminated entirely. Think about that. Think about that the next time you turn on the news and see the body of a little Syrian refugee washed up dead on the shores of some Mediterranean beach. The situation that caused his family to take such drastic measures to flee from their country won't exist anymore. Because war will be over. The scripture likewise says that when the Messiah comes to reign in Zion, justice will extend to the end of the earth. There will be no more political corruption, no more lies meant to mislead and subdue people. There will be an end to sex trafficking, an end to domestic abuse, an end to bullying and to racism. There will even be an end to poverty. Children won't have to go to bed hungry at night or cold. In the same way, natural evils. What the scripture tells us will tells us occur because even the creation itself currently groans against our sin. Even those natural evils will be eliminated because sin will be destroyed and the earth will ultimately be made new. So no more Boxing Day tsunamis. No more Hurricane Katrinas. No more Joplin tornadoes. All these evils, both natural and willful, will be put to an end And on top of all these things, you'll actually get to see the Savior who produces these changes. The Savior who loved you enough to put Himself in your place and die for you, to suffer the punishment that you deserve for your sins on your behalf, He'll be there, present. Now, I know He's present with us now already, I get that, but I mean He'll he'll actually be physically present. You're not going to have to wonder what He looks like, because you'll see Him. He'll be walking here among us. That all begins, all of that, at the end of the Great Tribulation. So while you may not be an Israelite, that doesn't mean that you can't identify with the disciples' concerns. The end of suffering that they eagerly anticipated, you should be able to anticipate too. You should be able to identify with their longing when they ask Jesus, when will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? But I have to say, that being said, you should also be able to identify with the fear and with the trepidation they felt when they asked him, when will these things be as well? When we look at the response that Jesus gives in verses 4 to 6, that seems to be the central concern that he's addressing, not just hope, but fear, actually. The disciples are afraid of the Great Tribulation, and for good reason. You look at verses 7 and 8, and they appear to mirror Revelation 6 in describing the general conditions that will occur on the earth during the Great Tribulation. If you would, go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. I want you to see this up close because I do think these passages mirror one another, and in mirroring one another, Revelation 6 provides a more detailed picture of what Jesus is saying in verses 7 and 8. So go ahead and turn over there, Revelation 6. Of course, in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John is given a vision at the very end of the age. This vision begins in the throne room of God where John sees this 
the splendid vision of this throne surrounded by a kind of rainbow, and on the throne is one with the appearance of jasper and carnelian, which is kind of a reddish stone. And around the base of that throne is a sea of glass like crystal. And from the throne come flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. In Revelation 5, John then sees this scroll that's written on both front and back and it's sealed with seven seals. According to the custom of John's day in in Roman tradition, this scroll represents a kind of contract. As one commentator explains, quote, this kind of contract was known all over the Middle East in ancient times and was used by the Romans from the time of Nero on. The full contract to be written in on the inner pages and sealed with seven seals. Then the content of the contract would be described briefly on the outside. All kinds of transactions were consummated in this way, including marriage contracts, rental and lease agreements, release of slaves, contract bills, and bonds. So this is a contract, this scroll, and from what is sung in response to the opening of this scroll in this chapter, it would appear that this particular contract is a title deed to the earth. It represents legal authority to inherit and rule over the earth. There's a proclamation made asking who in heaven is worthy to open this scroll and take possession of the earth. At first, no one answers. And and so John, at first, begins to weep. But then one of the elders who sits around the throne of God tells John, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then we start to see the scroll opened. Now, I don't want you to miss this. The significance of the seals is that they indicate authority. They indicate authority. You have seven seals in Revelation, and seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And you shouldn't miss the symbolism behind these various objects, because they each explain what is going on when they're exercised. A trumpet was commonly used to gather people, either to make an important proclamation, or even to gather for war. point is, it anticipates some later action. In the case of Revelation, the seven trumpets seem to be proclaiming the soon arrival of the Messiah to claim His kingdom. I think that's probably how you should understand the trumpet judgments that you see in Revelation. They really serve as warnings to the world of the wrath that is soon to come. In other words, those judgments are severe, but they're not nearly as severe as what occurs later on in Revelation. And in this sense, they're really a warning. They're they're announcing to the world the Lion of the tribe of Judah is about to arrive. According to the book of Revelation, it would seem that that these trumpets occur in the first half of the tribulation. When you consider what happens in the second half, I think you'll see why. We'll cover this in greater detail in the next few weeks, but things get much worse in the second half of the tribulation. And the trumpets are there to warn the people, warn the world, and give people a chance to repent in light of what's coming in the second half. The bulls don't announce anything. Instead, they were often used to hold liquids such as wine. And and when we observe the language associated with the day of the Lord, that seems to be the way the seven bulls are used in Revelation. For example, in describing Israel's discipline, Isaiah 51, 17-23 says this, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up to Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering, There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? 
Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of His people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, and you shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, Bow down that we may pass over you. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. So again, this passage, you see that this bowl, these bowls are holding wine that pour out the wrath of God. And God even in this passage takes that bowl of wrath from Israel and transfers it to the nations to drink. Zechariah 12.2 also speaks of God's wrath in this way, even saying that God is about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering for all the peoples. The idea is that they will come to wage war in Jerusalem and become drunk with the wrath of God in the process. The seven bowls in Revelation, which occur at the end of the second half of the tribulation, these do not proclaim anything. They simply punish. They destroy In other words, the seven trumpets, they warn of the wrath that comes in the seven bowls. The seals are indicative of of authority. In other words, as Jesus breaks the seals, He's demonstrating His authority to release the judgments pictured in the seven seals, which are necessary to possess the earth. In other words, while the trumpets and the bowls point to actual historical events that will transpire in the tribulation, the seals are more indicative of the types of judgments that will occur in the tribulation. To put it yet another way, you might think of Revelation 6 as as kind of a sneak peek of what's to come during the tribulation. As Jesus breaks each seal, John sees a vision of what is about to be unleashed on the earth during the tribulation as Jesus takes possession of His kingdom. The seals are an overview. They're a summary of the wrath that Jesus will unleash on the earth during the tribulation. For time's sake, I'm I'm not going to read what each seal represents. I'm just going to summarize them. But if you have your Bibles open there to Revelation 6, and you can kind of quickly read each of these passages as we go. The first seal occurs in verses 1 and 2, and it releases a rider on a white horse. He carries a bow. And John explains he he, uh, comes out conquering and to conquer. It's why they assume that this figure represents the Antichrist, who we saw last week, possesses a prodigious talent for war and who will use that ability to conquer many. Thus, the Great Tribulation is characterized first by the activity of the Antichrist. This leads logically to the second seal in verses 3 and 4, which is a red horse, and this horse represents war. The Tribulation, therefore, will be also be characterized as a time of unprecedented warfare. Peace is actually taken from the entire earth, according to verse 4. This is a time of world war. And this makes sense, given the career and activity of the Antichrist. So war, that's the second characteristic of the Great Tribulation. Third is famine. We see that with the third seal and the third horse, a black one. The rider on this horse has a pair of scales, and a voice says, A quart a wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the, wa- the oil and the wine. A denarius was equal to the, uh, it was an equivalent to one day's wages. A quart of wheat would be about enough food to feed a single person for a day. A quart of barley would feed a couple more, but it's the type of food that you generally feed to livestock, not to people. The idea is that this famine is so severe that a man will have a hard time earning enough to provide even basic sustenance for his family in those days. 
The injunction to protect the wine and the oil indicates how rare even these most basic luxuries will be in those days. A person who owns them needs to show extreme care in protecting them. So extreme famine marks the period of the tribulation. And again, this is actually consistent with the conditions described in the first two seals. War produces famine. The fourth seal unleashes a pale horse. And this symbolizes death. The conditions created by the first three seals we see in verse 8, in addition to the disease that would be spread, perhaps by scavengers like rats, will cause the tribulation to be dominated by death and pestilence. In verse 8, it speaks of death being given authority over a quarter of the earth. That appears to be a reference not to the population of the earth, but to the earth's surface. Every single time in Revelation, this term used for earth is used either in relation to the physical realm of planet earth or in relation to the land as in opposition to the sea. When people are referenced, they are called those who dwell on the earth. So just like you would have seen in World War I or World War II, you have a, a global war that's taking place, but it's taking place in specific theaters of war. These theaters of war are massive, taking up a t- even a, 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 up to a total of a quarter of the Earth's surface. And in those theaters of war, there is simply massive loss of life. How much life, it's not entirely clear, but I'll have to tell you, according to Revelation 9... In the sixth trumpet, there will be an army of 200 million that claim the lives of at least a third of mankind. So that should give you a picture of just how thoroughly death will characterize the period of the tribulation. In the fifth seal, there's a shift. We move away from the horses with the riders on them to something else. Instead, what we see are martyrs crying out to God, How long, O Lord, before you judge and avenge the blood of those who dwell on the earth? Thus we can see that martyrdom is the fifth characteristic of the tribulation. There will be believers during the tribulation who will suffer unprecedented persecution for their faith. We'll actually dig into this more next week, but this is a significant theme in the book of Revelation. And it would seem that the prayer that you see here actually plays an incredibly significant role in the events of the tribulation. And we'll discuss that more in the next section of the Olivet Discourse next week. The sixth seal unleashes signs in the heavens and on the earth. This seems to happen both during the trumpets and during the bulls. There are extreme signs in the heavens and on the earth in both. However, what's notable about the description provided here is that it mirrors what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 29-30. There he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, meaning that what he is describing comes at the end of the tribulation. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That is describing the return of Christ. And it mirrors Revelation six twelve to 17 which says, When they opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. 
Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the cave among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? This is actually why I tend to say that the seals are indicative of the entire period of the tribulation because the sixth sixth seal obviously describes an event that will happen at the very end. Either way, the point is, incredible signs in the heavens mark the sixth characteristic of the day of the Lord. It's a time of unprecedented turmoil, not only on the earth, but in the heavens as well. It would seem that as sin creases under Antichrist, the earth increasingly writhes in agony as well. That's the picture that we see in Isaiah 24, 4-6. It says, describing this final judgment, Quote, the earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, the highest people on the earth languish, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant, therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt, therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. The earth earth writhes in agony under sin. So geographical and celestial cataclysms, these are the sixth mark of the tribulation. Finally, and most importantly, the seventh seal. This occurs all the way in Revelation 8, 1 to 5. Flip over there briefly. As this seal is opened, the seven trumpets that will begin to herald the coming of the Lion of Judah are handed out to seven angels. And then another angel takes a censer, which is this container in which incense is burned. And the incense burned in this censer are the prayers of the saints. And he takes fire from the altar and he puts it in the censer burning the incense. And he takes the censer and he throws it upon the earth. And then look at what John says. The censer with the prayer of the saints, which has been filled with this fire from the heavenly altar, it's thrown upon the earth. And John says, And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now is that... Description sounded all familiar. Revelation 4, 5, in describing the throne, says, From the throne comes flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. In other words, what the seventh seal describes is the coming of God. In the words of the martyrs in the fifth seal, to judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. This same description of the flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, rumblings, and an earthquake, it will occur again with the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11, and then again with the seventh bowl in Revelation 17. It is the last and ultimate characteristic of the tribulation, and it is the most terrifying of all. During the tribulation, the Lion of Judah, the creator of the heavens and the earth, will come to finally slay those who have rejected his message and persecuted his people. The devastation of that day it would seem, will dwarf all others. Revelation 16 speaks of the Antichrist assembling all the nations of the earth to make war against the Messiah from Judah in that day. And Revelation 14 speaks of the blood from the defeat of those armies flowing as high as a horse's bridle over a span of approximately 185 miles. Is there anything so fearsome as the day of the Lord? and the great tribulation that will occur during that time. When you really get a picture of it, I think you can see why in Jeremiah 30, verse 5, it speaks of men grabbing their stomachs and groaning like a woman in labor in those days. So great will be the terror of that day. 
I think you can see why as, why as well, as much as there is to look forward to at the conclusion of the Great Tribulation, I think you can see why the prophet Amos actually said, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went to the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and, and, and gloom with no brightness in it? It's a terrifying day. Well, it's that day that the Olivet Discourse is describing. Turn back over to Matthew 24. And Jesus says in verses 7 to 8, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Luke adds, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. That's all descriptive of the seals of Revelation 6. And Jesus says that when those things begin to kick up, the day of wrath is just getting started. When the disciples ask Jesus, when will these things be, in response to his prediction of the destruction of the temple, this is what they're anticipating. They know he's talking about the day of the Lord, and quite honestly, they're scared. And I think we can identify with that, can we not? To realize that this day is coming, that it could even be tomorrow, that can be an incredibly scary thought. Again, that's relevant to us because Jesus is describing history here before it's happened. And what this means is that it's very easy to get caught up in speculation, wondering, could this be the day? Is it next week? You know, this this headline in the news, does that mean that the day of the Lord is at hand? Again, we can do this either out of excitement or out of terror. There is so much wrapped up in the coming of the Great Tribulation that it's very easy to see the events happening in the world around us today, let our imagination run wild, and begin to speculate about whether or not that day has arrived. But should we do that? Is that what Jesus would recommend? It would appear not. Look at verses 4 to 6. Jesus says, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this, may, this must take place, but, Jesus says, but the end is not yet. In Luke, he says, the end will not be at once. That is to say, it won't happen immediately upon the appearance of these things. You jump down to verse 14, and after this period of persecution that will occur in the first half of the tribulation, Jesus says, In this gospel, the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And he begins talking about the abomination of desolation and the events of the second half of the tribulation. So Jesus describes all the events in verses 4 to 6, and he says, When you see these things, don't be frightened. That has to happen, but it doesn't signal the end yet. Then in verse 7, he begins describing the events that will inaugurate the Great Tribulation, what he calls the beginning of birth pains. Finally, he gets the abomination of desolation, and he says, now, now, when you see that, when you see that, know that the end is at hand. Point is, the events in verses 4 to 6 don't signal the end. It would appear they don't even describe the beginning of birth pains. 
I think this is made very clear in Luke, by the way, because Luke very intentionally sets Jesus' predictions of the war and pestilences and famines and earthquakes apart from his discussion of the Antichrist, or the false Christ, sorry, false Christ. So it would seem that this is a period of time that precedes the tribulation entirely. So how does Jesus describe this period? This one before the tribulation. He says that there will be wars and rumors of wars. Basically, the same things that will produce the events of the Great Tribulation, because again, those events will begin with the activity of the Antichrist as he expands his kingdom across the earth. Jesus says those same conditions will exist all the way up until the end. And yet they won't signal the end. The idea is that it will be hard to distinguish just by looking out on the world when the Great Tribulation will begin, because when it begins, it will look just like the world that we see going on around us today. Paul even says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, that that day will come like a thief in the night, meaning that it will be totally unexpected when it happens. There will be no warnings leading up to the day of the Lord. And so it's futile to speculate. Not only this, but Jesus even warns his disciples that there will be men who will come to try to encourage such speculation. And he says that in so doing, they will lead many, quote, astray. Here in Matthew, these men come claiming to be Jesus Himself. They come saying, I am the Christ. We've seen some 20th century examples of this sort of thing. A few weeks ago, I spoke at length about An Song Hong of the World Mission Society Church of God. That would be one example. You also have leaders of more fringe groups, men such as David Koresh of the Branch Davidians or Marshall Applewhite of the Heaven's Gate Cult. I think it's obvious how those false Christs might lead people astray, Right? I also tend to think that in or near the time of the tribulation, there may be many Jewish false Christs more along the lines of Judas the Galilean, who's mentioned in Acts 5. Judas the Galilean was an insurrectionist who responded to Roman oppression by urging Israelites to refuse to pay Roman taxes. He not only died in his self-styled attempt to be Israel's Messiah, but Josephus says that he actually founded the Zealot movement, who he blamed for the Jewish war of 66 to 70 A.D., by the way, that's the Lord, the war that led to the destruction of the temple that Jesus predicted back in verse 2. Next week, we'll look at what conditions will be like in Israel during the tribulation. And from what Scripture describes, I wouldn't be surprised if similar figures, similar figures repeat history and perhaps even incite the wrath of Antichrist during the second half of the tribulation. So those types of false Christs would, would lead many astray as well to devastating effect, just like Judas of Galilean did. Regardless, I think Jesus' point is that there, is going, there are going to be figures like this throughout history all the way up until the end, and they're going to leverage people's eager anticipation of the end as a mean of gaining followers. They're going to prey on their excitement, or if not their excitement, on their concern, and they're going to use that to lead people astray from the truth. In Luke, Jesus adds that some will say, the time is at hand. And this seems to be consistent with those who say that the day of the Lord has come without necessarily claiming to be the Christ themselves. This would comprise men like Hal Lindsey, author of the the late great planet Earth, which sold 28 million copies. He predicted that Jesus would come back in 1988, 40 years after the creation of the modern state of Israel. This would also include Harold Camping, who predicted that the world would end in September 1994. And then when he was wrong about that, he predicted that he would come again in October 2011. 
And we could go on. There are just too many examples to cite. And unfortunately, people will give away a lot of money to men like this. Some will even sell all their possessions in advance of those dates, figuring that there's no reason to keep their things, their material things in this world, if the world's about to end. And then they'll often give their money to the man making the prediction so they can spend that money on advertising, telling people about the end of the world. Harold Camping, for instance, spent over $5 million in billboard advertising proclaiming his prediction for the end of the world. And then when he was wrong, he refused to give the money back. Again, just as Jesus warned, these false teachers will lead people astray with their predictions about the end. They'll use their concern about the future to take advantage of them. So it's not only fuel to speculate about the end of the world, because you can't predict it. You can't see it coming. It's going to come like a thief in the night. But it's also very foolish. You can get yourself in a lot of trouble trying to predict when the day of the Lord will begin. So as much as we might fear the day of the Lord, and as much as we might be excited by its outcome, we shouldn't speculate over whether or not the time has come. So what should we do? How should we respond to this knowledge that the day of the Lord is coming? For guidance on this, I think it's helpful to go to Daniel chapter 12. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Daniel chapter 12. At the beginning of Daniel 12, Daniel is told that there is a time of trouble coming during which his people will experience suffering such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. That's a prediction of the Great Tribulation. And in concern over this prediction and in confusion about its timing, Daniel asks in verse 8, Oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He's eager to know the final result. And this is what Daniel is told. Verses 9 and 10. Go your way, Daniel. For the words are shut up and sealed until the end of time. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand. But those who are wise shall understand. The idea is that no one will know when the time comes. When the time comes, the wise will be able to perceive it when it comes. The wicked, however, will not. They will still not understand what's happening. Daniel is then told that the end will come a little over three and a half years after the abomination of desolation is set up. And the book of Daniel closes with these words, But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. In other words, Daniel isn't given an answer to his question. He isn't allowed to know all the details of the Great Tribulation. What he is allowed to know, what he is allowed to know, is that the faithful who survive it, will be blessed. So their sufferings will not be for naught. God will reward them for the things they endure. So there is a good outcome to these things, even if Daniel isn't told all the details of that outcome. And then Daniel is basically told, so you just worry about what God has in store for you in the present, and you'll receive your reward in that day as well. Go your way till the end. Go your way till the end. That's Daniel's instruction for how to respond to this information. Don't worry about when it's going to happen or what the outcome will be. Know that the outcome will be good and it will happen in God's timing. So you just worry about you right now and do what is necessary to be faithful now in this present moment. Really, the instruction is very similar to what Jesus gives to those who worry about the future in Matthew 6. He tells those who worry about the future in regards to money, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will have will have uh, be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Yes, there is, there is trouble coming in the future. But the trouble that you and I face today is is more than enough to keep us busy as well. There's no use trying to worry about the trouble down the line that we not only cannot predict, but which Jesus says we should not predict. The way the Scripture deals with our concern about the future is to tell us that God, tell us enough to know that God has a plan without telling us so much that we forget the things we should be concerned about in the present. What we're to be concerned about, of course, is the advancement of God's kingdom, the proclamation of the gospel. That's our mission in this present age. We're told enough about, uh, about the future to know that we should be urgent in this mission because the day of the Lord, it could begin tomorrow. However, we don't know that it will begin tomorrow. And so we shouldn't spend our time trying to prepare for that day before it happens. What I mean is that we shouldn't spend our time trying to avoid the outcome of that day. You get people, for instance, who in fear of the future spend all their time stocking up supplies or moving money around into different forms of currency, all in order to try to mitigate the suffering that will occur when that day happens. As Christians, that's not how you should spend your time and your resources. You should not live in fear of that day. Instead, you need to busy yourself with the advancement of God's kingdom now and trust the fact that He has a plan for what will happen to His people in that day. By the way, what will happen to God's people in that day, that's a question we'll get into in verses 9-14 to next week. In the meantime, understand that this is what you should busy yourself with. The advancement of the kingdom of heaven. Last week I said the most important part of any story is the end. Because it shapes the way we understand everything else in the story. And I asked you what your role in the story is. God has told us the end of the story. And it explains your role in it. A great day of wrath is coming. When God will destroy everyone who is not covered by the blood of Christ. Your job is to go and warn people about that day. And to call on them to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. Is that how you spend your time? Is that how you structure your life? Understand the day of the Lord. It could begin tomorrow. Are the things that you're focusing on now, are they going to make sense in light of that day? Those are the questions you should ask when you consider both the content and the result of the great tribulation. Let's pray that God would use this knowledge of the future to transform us into bold and urgent witnesses to His gospel. Let's pray.